Good morning, church. Today's passage is John 3, 22 through 36. Here's God's word to us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives this testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he who gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jessica. If we haven't met one another, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. Why don't we turn our attention now to prayer? God, thank you that you have spoken through your word. Thank you that whatever else we bring to this place, our worries, our hopes, our dreams, our passions, our heartaches, our fears, We don't have to leave them at the door, but we come and we do lay them before you. Not that you would avoid them, not that you would completely dismantle them, not that you would cast them far from us, but that you actually meet us in them. And you come to speak life and truth and joy in the midst of our everyday life. So we anticipate, God, that the way you have spoken timelessly through your word It would speak to us timelessly and very timely today. We trust this by the power of the Spirit, whom you've promised to be among us when we gather in your name, and it is in the name of Jesus we do say these things. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I want to invite you um, to do a thought experiment with me, okay? Here's the thought experiment. I want you to imagine John the Baptist, JB, that I'm going to affectionately, not Ben Beasley, by the way. I saw this picture and I just had to pick it. I was just like, this makes me think of Pastor Ben Beasley. Uh, (laughs) I want you to imagine uh, that JB never got out the way. That Jesus shows up on the scene and he never steps down. I mean, and and I want you to go there with me for a second because JB, he had a pretty astounding birth narrative, right? His mom and dad 
They were past the years of having children, and the Spirit of God came even on him when he was an infant. I mean, something astounding. His dad was a priest. Then as he gets older, he goes off into the wilderness. He doesn't chase the crowds. The crowds chase him. Everybody's hanging on his word. People are sitting on the edge of their seat. They're standing up on their tiptoes. I mean, he's an extraordinary speaker. He's got a way with words, and he doesn't mince words. I mean, he is so visceral at times. He goes after political and religious leaders because of their immorality, and the people love it for him. You know, they love him for it because they're like, finally, someone who carries forth the prophetic voice that we've been missing for hundreds of years. And he guides him. He says, listen, we're going to get ready for God to show up, and people are coming, and they're excited. They're, they're mesmerized by what God is doing through JB. And he's got years ahead of him. I mean, he's only in his mid-30s at this point. Potential upon potential, opportunity upon opportunity. I can't help but imagine that when JB's disciples came to him, if he would have said something, and they said, hey, hey, there's that Jesus guy that you helped platform. Everybody's going to him. Everybody that used to come to us. I can't help but imagine John the Baptist so easily saying something like, you know what, you're right. We've worked too hard to get here. We've been at this for years. Jesus wouldn't have anything without us. This is the opportunity. You know what? We're going to work. We're going we're gonna to pick up our game, all right? Let's, let's throw out some ideas because, listen, not even if this guy is God himself will he shut us down. If you put that narrative in a 21st century context today, even in a religious context, I wouldn't be surprised. But what's so surprising, frankly, is that JB doesn't do that. He does get out of the way. Interestingly enough, when you look throughout history, those who have power almost never are willing to give it to another. Whether we like it or not, most of our life is like the TV show Succession. Anybody seen this show? This is where like this whole family, all these siblings, are war with one another, trying to take over this multi-billion dollar business that their dad had started. They're all vying for power. And the dad himself is unwilling to relinquish it. It's all these just messy dynamics. And I mean, you can look. I'm, I'm gonna, we'll do some real talk, talk for a second, okay? Because politicians, whether former politicians or present politicians in the U.S. or abroad, do this. We look at CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, or you look at entrepreneurs of micro-enterprise. They do this. You look at pastors and rural churches of about 50 people. You look at suburban megachurches of, you know, thousands. They do it. And we can go all the way down to the relational dynamics of a toxic marriage. Those with power and willing to relinquish it. That's why it's so astounding that John the Baptist... He goes against the grain of culture and even the movement of a broken world. And he lays it down. He gets out the way. And then he says an unequivocal statement, Jesus must increase and I must de decrease. And then on top of that, he says, you know what? That makes, makes me full of joy. <laughs> and then on top of that, listen, he actually does it. This wasn't rhetoric to get their vote, okay? This wasn't a way to gain more power by saying the right things. He actually gets out the way. And I think to myself, finally, a man of integrity. 
who actually longs for the purposes of God beyond all else. Finally, this is the model. Now we're continuing our journey. This isn't just out of nowhere. This isn't just something that God laid on my heart. We are walking through a book of the Bible. We're looking through John the Evangelist's gospel account of which we've called Word Made Flesh. It's anchored in John chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus is making the invisible God known. He's telling the story of who God actually is because he is God incarnate. And John the Evangelist keeps talking about this other John, John the Baptist. We've seen him a couple times up through our text. He keeps coming back to this brilliant character. And here he's putting a bow on John the Baptist's story. And it's a story of surrender and joy. And make no mistake, we are to notice how John the Baptist responds. There's actually a lesson here for us. There's, a, there's so much going on in each one of the texts we walk through. Man, if we had seminars for just like five verses a day, I'd be all about that. But here's the deal, we don't. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see how John the Baptist responds. How does he get there? What are we to understand and how he's responding here? Because out of all the things, right, John the evangelist later says there's all these things about Jesus that could be filling books upon books upon books, but he spends so much time on John the Baptist. We actually have something to learn here from him and how he relates to Jesus that's actually good for you and for me and how we too can be this kind of person. No matter your level of influence, no matter your level of power, no matter your level of potential, we have something here, a secret upon secrets, a knowing joy to a deeper level. Okay, sound good? So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we're going to work our way through this briefly here. So John chapter 3, verse 22, it says, after this, this is after the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, a religious leader. After this conversation, Jesus, he goes out to the Judean countryside and people have begun to hear about this person who has disrupted the temple, who's doing some pretty astounding things that John the Baptist himself said, this is the lamb of God. This is the one to come. So people are starting to flock to him. And then the text says that they're coming and they're coming with a sense of repentance. And in the same way that John was baptizing people as a symbol, of their repentance. Now, people are coming to Jesus and his disciples. If you look to John chapter 4, we see that it's not Jesus himself who's baptizing these individuals, but his disciples. And this was common to identify the works of someone's disciples with their rabbi, okay? So Jesus' disciples are baptizing folks. Then you get to, to verse 25. There's this discussion that rises between JB's followers and this Jewish guy about the ceremony of the cultural cleansing with water. Once again, there's a lot going on here. Theologians disagree. Commentators disagree. There's a lot of movements in this text. We're not going to be able to go deep into that, but here's what I want to do move to is then they suddenly say, they go to John the Baptist and like, hey, John, all these people, everyone, I love this language, everyone, it's all inclusive, everyone who used to come to us, they're gone, they're gone, and they're going to this guy, the guy that you platformed. Now, there's a lot that's not said here. Well, the exaggeration helps us a little bit, because they do still have some people coming. Um, they're feeling a sense of, hey, this isn't fair. Jesus, you platform him, and now we don't have a job. 
Jesus, you helped promote this guy, or John, you helped promote this guy, and, and now everybody's going to him, or at least most people are going to him. We're not nearly, we gave up families, we gave up jobs to come follow you and to learn from you, and now everybody's going over there. What are we going to do? This isn't fair. There's a sense of defensiveness. There's definitely a sense of jealousy. What James writes about later in his letter is one of the two pillars that uphold the very foundation of hell. And then John, he drops a little knowledge, okay, in verse 27. He reorients them as to the way the world actually is. I love that. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. He's like, hey, guys, listen. Now, sometimes theologians or pastors use the language of sovereign. This means that God is over all. It doesn't mean that God delights in everything that happens throughout history, but he is in control and nothing does happen without his awareness of it. Nothing, nothing. And John is saying, listen, the way James writes about it, I'm, I'm jumping over to James again twice now. Look out. So if you want to read that letter, that's a good letter to go to. James writes, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, doesn't it? Every good and perfect gift. John has an understanding that there's something good happening in Jesus. And he has a deep understanding that it wouldn't be happening in Jesus unless God was behind it. And so he's saying, hey, listen, guys, everything that's good that's happening in Jesus, that's got God's fingerprints all over it. And then he begins to explain why he's so calm in the midst of this. He goes, listen, I always said I wasn't the Christ. Always. I continually told you, people asked me, people assumed because God was working powerfully through me that I was the one through whom everything was going to happen. I was saying, no, my job is actually to prepare the way for the one. So now you're coming to me when the one has come and you're like, why is everybody going to the one? And I'm saying, that's what I always said to do. I've come to prepare the way for the one and I'm not the one. So why are you surprised? And then he uses an illustration of the wedding which if you've been reading along through John, you notice this becomes a pretty common trend. Back in John chapter 2, he turns water into wine at a wedding. Later on, we'll see in the Good Samaritan, there's things that are happening around a well that actually reminisce back to early couples within the scriptures that make us think of wedding ceremony kind of imagery. There's a lot going on here, but John says, listen, listen, listen. Uh, let me just get it straight for y'all. I am a groomsman. There's this glorious wedding celebration that's coming. My job is to make sure the bride has everything she needs, that she's ready. When the bride's groom comes, when the groom comes, when he's like, hey, I'm coming because this was common for the, the groom to go away and to prepare a place and to come back and then everybody would celebrate. They were all waiting for the groom to come back, but the groomsman was like trying to get the wedding celebration details together and the bride together, get everything ready so that when the groom does come, he gets into the background. Now, as a pastor, I've done a decent amount of weddings and when the groomsman thinks it's all about him versus the groom, it just doesn't go well. And sometimes I got to be that guy. Like, hey, bro, know your role, all right? Come on. Like, there's a little bit like, hey, settle it down. I know you're funny. Oh, man, you hit the wedding ring again. You know. But here's the deal. John the Baptist isn't, like, going to make this about him at all. He's like, here's the ring. You guys do your thing, Okay. He's like, listen, my job has always been to play second fiddle. And I'm okay with that. Even more than that, I'm, I'm thrilled. 
I'm full of joy. This is the length, the fullness of joy. Once again, should hearken us back to that wedding where Jesus fills those jars to the brim. And he's like, I am full because the groom is here and I've done my part. And he goes, just to make it absolutely clear, then we get to verse 30, this extraordinary, brilliant phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. This language of must it's all across the gospel accounts. It has this divine must. Like there's actually no, tr- like it's gonna happen whether you like it or not. Later on, we even see in the Good Samaritan, or the, not the Good Samaritan, the woman of Samaria story in chapter four that Jesus must, he has to pass through Samaria. This language keeps popping up where God is actually moving these pieces together and John is seeing this. John the Baptist is seeing this. He goes, listen, he has to increase and I have to decrease. Like this is for the good of the world. And he's come to terms, and more than that, with coming to terms, he's full of joy in the midst of it. And so John's word to himself, John's word to his followers, John's word for you and for me today is this. If you want joy, receive God's call to get out the way. You know, you and I, we can be some of the biggest obstacles to ourselves. We can be some of the biggest obstacles to what God wants to do in and through us. JB, there was no one else who really had the authority within his ranks to say, hey, man, you need to step out of the way of Jesus. The the promised one has come. That came on him. That was his burden to actually be ready for this day to step out of the way. And same for you and I. I. I think it's so easy to be tempted to put ourselves at the center of the vision of our life. Like what? And always think about me, me, me. What's at the center of my vision for my life and being very self-centered on what you hope to become? And so we get so focused on ourselves, we lose sight of Jesus. And I think that's what John reveals here before us is all the more relevant for you and for me. We live, I think, in a culture where self-actualization is everything. What does that mean? That means you becoming the most of who you can become. And there is an element of that that's good. But when it becomes everything, then even Jesus himself can feel like an obstacle to becoming what you feel like you fully need to become. When authenticity is everything, then confession is prized and repentance is downplayed. Confession means, hey, this is where I'm at. Repentance says, yeah, that's where I'm at, but this is where Jesus is calling me to go. Even if it rubs against the grain. In authenticity, we love to confess, but we'll never repent. And in authenticity culture where it's the ultimate goal, then your work goals, your professional goals, which are kind of the same thing, but not always the same thing, your personal goals, your relational goals, they all have you at the center. How do I become my ultimate me? Part of that's good, but when it's everything, it'll destroy you. And if you don't, like here's the dark side of this. If you don't become your full potential or what you think is your full potential, what are you called? Lazy? Quickly you feel mediocre, which can sometimes feel worse than being called lazy. You become overlooked. And the damning nature, and I use that word very specifically on purpose, 
of constantly rising potential, that can destroy you when that's your end goal. Because the result is you never stop working. The result is your email is always open because you're always accessible because if you're not, then you'll be rejected. If you don't perform, your people, whoever your people are, whether it's a friend group, whether it's a marriage, whether it's those coworkers, they'll leave you. And that's and so always on. And then so what we do then, because we can't, we can't live underneath the constant weight of overwhelming me, me, me potential, then we have cult, multiple strategies to kind of navigate that. Retirement becomes our escape hatch. Every vacation becomes our lifeline because you can't live in the now because potential's there and you can't rest there because you got to become your fullest self there and you got to put yourself at the center there. You got to constantly be thinking about strategies to lift yourself up because it's all about you, you, you. And so now when you go to vacation, you don't have to think about you. You get to treat you. Treat yourself, right? You don't have to be anything for anyone else because the constant way to that. You can't live the place that God's called you to live because you've made it about yourself rather than God's calling there. But not John. John is someone who knew extraordinary influence and yet was willing to give it all up like that. And it's hard if you've never had that level, and I have not had that level, but from what I've gathered from those who have reached that level, once you taste that kind of power, it is intoxicating. And it's hard to release. You see, John, he wasn't driven by ultimate self-actualization and the potential of everybody else who said what he should have been, but he was called by God for a specific purpose. And that's a categorically different way of living, to be called versus to be driven. And I want, I want to just walk us through that together here for a second. We're going to look at the difference between being called versus being driven. And if you've got a piece of paper or some way to take notes, you can almost write two columns and do some comparisons here, okay? So let's look at to be called first. To be called is ultimately a relational category. The apostle, or the apostle, John the Baptist um, says that he has received, right? Nobody can get anything from heaven unless they've received it from heaven, anything. And he's received this calling. And so he has this understanding that at the heart, calling is a relational category. It's to be called to someone. And yeah, it may involve something, but it's ultimately about walking alongside of someone. John the Baptist had been called, yes, to prepare the way for someone. But ultimately, it was to walk with God in preparation for God. It's a relational category first. And it's something that he himself had received from God. And then he comes and it shows itself in this humble confidence. Humble confidence. It's humble in the fact that John knows who he's not. He's like, listen, I've always said I'm not the Christ. Stop putting these labels on me that don't apply to me. I know those are great labels. They would feel great to have, I'm sure. But don't put labels on me that don't apply to me. Humble. It's not who I am. But also confident because he knew who he was. He knew that he was to come to prepare the way. It's not utter just um, self-abasement, but it's an understanding that, hey, this is who I'm not and this is who I am. I'm not the Christ, but I'm the one who prepares the way for the Christ. Because God's with me, and that's beautiful. And this statement is astounding because he says, you know what? He must increase, 
but I must decrease. The way it's also humble is that he recognizes that he's got to get out of the way, but it's also full of confidence because he knows that Jesus, the one that he's getting out of the way for, will rise. So it's got humility, but it's in confidence in someone else. And actually the, the word for believe later on in verse 36, the one who believes in the son is actually the one who has confidence in the son. That's the note there. It's not just cognitive assent that you can take a pop quiz, but you have confidence in who he is and what he's come to do. And I love this statement because it's so bad because he doesn't just say, listen, if you just cut off half of this statement, it doesn't work. If he just says, I must become less, I must decrease, that's pity. That's a dark side of pride. It's a constantly self-centered view that looks about how things are so much, I must decrease, I, 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 I. If it's just that, that's pity. If it's just, he must increase, but you never talk about yourself except you're always trying to compete to kind of say, yeah, he must increase, but so should I. Like that's a, that's pride. I'm going to like increase with him, you know, like, wait a second. You need both. A recognition that Jesus must become more and I must become less. There's something beautiful about the tethering of the two. Andrew Murray, he was a South African writer, theologian, pastor. He brilliantly writes in his classic book entitled Humility. He says, just yesterday I was asked the question, how am I to conquer this pride? The answer was simple. Two things are needed. Do that which God says is your work and humble yourself. Trust him to do what he says is his work, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. I think John understood this. I think that's a lot of what John is communicating here. And because John was called by God, he was then able to allow God's assessment to be the primary definition of his work. When his disciples came to him and said, you got to be doing more. you got to get the influence back. you got to get us back on the rails. John wasn't concerned about that. Or even worse, right? The internal monologue that you have where you're constantly telling yourself you ought to be doing more, that's able to be silenced because God's assessment is more powerful than even his own. And then he even understood that God can continue to work without him. I'm gonna say that again because there are certain projects and I'll even just say, the more autistic bent you are, the more everything you give up, you have to surrender because it's never done. <laughs> you have to understand that God will continue to work without you after you're done doing what he's called you to do, to release. John understood that. He's like, I've done my part. There's more to do, but it's not mine to do. I'm going to back away. <laughs> That's to be called. It has a relational category. It's ultimately, ultimately about this connection with God and what he's called you to do such that it doesn't crush you, but it carries you, but it also lowers you and raises you. It's paradoxical and beautiful. But to be driven, to be driven means that you're orienting your life around certain outcomes, not a relationship, but outcomes. It's the idea that the way you view yourself, your particular goals are so self-centered, you've already got it all mapped out. And you, if you go to God at all, you go to him to help, help you get to where you want to go. You see, that's slightly different. Called is, God's like, I'm going to take you over here. This is what I have. We're going to go together. Great. Driven is, I want to go there. God, you with me? Great. We're going to do this. You're going to do it with me. <laughs> different. And when you're driven versus being called, and listen, I know some of y'all, you guys got some amazing, amazing just 
push within you to get things done. But the outcome of that so easily, when you're just driven and you're expecting God to support you rather than to be called to what God's called you to do and to be with him, the outcome is so easily arrogant insecurity versus humble confidence. It's arrogant because every conversation you're in, every tweet you make, every news headline you find yourself on, depending on your context, it's got to come back to me, me, me. This is how I would have done it better. This is where I'm at. This is what, oh, you, this is what you're going through. That's the pain you're, oh, I'm so sorry. You're feeling so bad. You know what I did? I did the same thing and it was way worse than what you had to go through. That's me. So it's constantly back to me. And then in the midst of that, when you do that, you're constantly making demands of others to help meet you. But those are nothing in comparison to the demands you make on yourself inside you. And this is where the tireless work comes from. This is where your heart can never rest. Such that even when you arrive, you don't feel like you've arrived because the goal line is moved. Because the goal line is always someone else or somewhere else. You get wound up. And it's ultimately found in this source of deep insecurity where you think to yourself, you know what, if I, if I stop, if I stop giving good things to the people around me, they're going to leave. If I stop pushing, then I'll be perceived as a failure. If I stop working, then I'm going to be let go or relieved or pushed away. If I'm not constantly outdoing the previous work, then who's going to stay with me? Your drive is actually a drive for survival. And then when it comes to assessing your life, well, then who says? Then it will be the people around you. It'll be actually a mixture of a few things. It'll be from the people around you because your drive has been set on certain outcomes defined by someone other than God. And so you're looking to them or to yourself or some mystery component, because the reality is you will never feel like you're getting a good enough assessment to slow down. And the only way you will ever ever be able to slow down is when you're forced to through death. You're in drive until death puts you in park. And then you're going to look back and you're going to say, what, what? I felt like I was going 80. I don't even remember the landscape I was passing. So let me ask you this morning, are you called by God or driven by yourself? Now, I know there's a lot there around this calling language, people trying to discern. And once again, I'm saying this is a who way before it's a what. Who are you walking with? And how do you know? Well, let's look at what you're getting out of that. There there are two different outcomes here in this text. Are you getting joy or are you getting jealousy? You see, jealousy, it's, it's really natural to our world order, isn't it? And it always takes two people. It's a relational category. You can't just be jealous. You're jealous of someone, someone else's state, right? Cain is jealous of Abel. Saul is jealous of David and so on. You, you see, it's always of someone. It's very relational. The reality is, is so is joy. Joy is not the outcome of a particular state of accomplishment, We've got to get this definition out of our minds. Joy, this is what's so important. Psychologists are finally catching up with the masterful word of God, but joy has always been defined in relational 
terms. It's, it's, the, it's the outcome of being intimately known by someone else and loved unconditionally such that when you see each other, you light up. That's joy. It's relational. Just as much as jealousy. Just as much. And that's what's so powerful about John. He's got all of this influence. Half the time doesn't even look like he's trying. <laughs> and then when it's time to decrease, he's like, I'm full. I had all this. I was the center. Now I'm the back. Great. You know why? Because I'm still tethered to my God. My God doesn't look at me as always having to be at the front of the line to finally be worthy of his love. He's called me here and now he's called me to stop and I'm fine because I'm still with my God. And guess what? That Jesus over there is finally the one that's to come. I don't have to vie for attention. I'll let God define me as enough. So as to when the time for me to go into the background comes, I'll be full rather than thinking back on the good old days. Is that your story? Is that your vocational lens? Is that the way you see your work? Is that how you're going about your parenting? Is that how you're going about your relationships? Is that how you go about kind of our relationships and our engagement together here at Christ Community? Are you called by God? Or are you constantly driven tirelessly by yourself? If you want more joy, you got to receive God's call to get out of the way. <laughs> in other words, stop pretending to be God in your life. You know, here's, here's the deal. We are, I think COVID has helped us a little bit break the illusion of control or, hey, I'll make these plans in six months. Oh, the world shut down. Cool. Um, there's an element in which we recognize all the more the need for agility and just how much we don't have in control. And so I'm going to say out right now, like there are certain things in your life you will not be able to control no match how, no matter how much you perform, no, match, no matter how hard you try to manage other people's emotions, there are certain things you cannot control. And that's okay. Stop pretending to be God in your life. There are certain things that you really want that you will not get. And that's going to be okay. Stop pretending to be God in your life. Now, I'm going to say a quick caveat here. Because there are passages in scripture where God calls people to do extraordinary work of change, extraordinary works of justice, to bring about evangelism and massive scale. Like there's extraordinary work. God had done that with John the Baptist, hadn't he? So this isn't a sermon of just to let go and let God. This isn't a sermon where you just say life's never going to change. Too bad. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that again and again, when God calls people to do extraordinary work for him and they do, it's when they start thinking that they are God and they put themselves in the place of God that their really good work becomes very toxic work. It's when justice slowly starts to inch toward revenge. It's when compassion slowly starts to inch towards enablement, and so on. You put yourself back at the center. And so today, where do you need to get out of the way? Huh? Um, man, I, I gotta tell you, I spent way too much time, not too much, I spent a lot of time on this text. And here's a couple questions I just wanna invite us to kind of reflect over. And so if you wanna write them down, you can. They're not gonna be up on the screen because there's just been too many slides. Um, and I care too much for my friends in the back. Um, 
But here you go. What are you chasing that you haven't been given? I'm going to give you a litmus test because you're like, how do I know? Here's a go. Are you sacrificing integrity, charity, or generosity to get it? That's when you're chasing something you haven't been given. Where are you trying to hold on to something you need to let go? Are you unwilling to rest? Are you unable to rest? Such that even when on your day off, you're checking work email. Are you trying to control a relationship so you're managing their emotions? Are you sacrificing integrity in your work in order to meet supposed ridiculous demands? Where are you trying to be more than you are called to be? That was actually for that one, sorry. Where are you trying to be more than you're called to be? Apparently, I wasn't called to do that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Second question, where are you trying to hold on to something you need to let go? Are you competing when you need to be collaborating? Are you unable to forgive? That's not an option for Christians. It doesn't always mean reconciliation, but we always come with a posture of forgiveness. Are you avoiding rather than resolving? See, all these are ways that we pretend to be God, and they often show up in these little hairline cracks until you get pressure, and then they are slowly revealed to be these gaping holes in our lives. We're driven to be someone other than God has called us to be, and we put our outcomes first or even our strategies for accomplishing our outcomes ahead of walking with Jesus in the way that he's called us to walk, looking to him, letting him increase rather than us decreasing. It's hard to say just stop pretending um, to be God in your life today, right? Because it's a habit. (laughs) It's a habit we were born into. It's a habit that we live out. It's like, hey, just uh, stop doing that thing. You're like, man, I've been doing this for years. I've I've tried to stop. Um, I can't stop putting, you know, milk in my tea. You know, I've been doing it for years. We instead need to, instead of trying periodically, we need to start training better got to start building the spiritual muscles to actually engage this. And so that's where I want to end our time together, is how do we start training to get out the way today? The best path for that is the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are these regular practices that over time, actually by the power of the Spirit, cultivate an inner strength, no matter your circumstances. And actually, John the Baptist engaged some pretty powerful disciplines. If you go to Mark chapter one, I'm telling you, I was reading this, like I'm I'm thinking to myself, how does John the Baptist get to verse 30? He must increase, but I'm like, how does he get there? Because so many people don't, even that hold up Jesus as their Lord and Savior can't do that. Why? What's going on here? It's just like, well, he just didn't love Jesus enough. Well, how is that helpful? Help me out. Well, when you go to Mark chapter one, we see that actually John has certain disciplines in his life that are palpable for actually dismantling the overbearing weight of power and influence. In Mark chapter 1, we see two things, that he fasted and he was in solitude all the time. He fasted. He was eating locusts and wild honey. Y'all, that does not fill your stomach. That, will, that is a starvation diet, such that every time his body came with a hunger pang, he could tell himself, my desires don't dictate where I go. My desires don't dictate where I go. They're a window into what's happening within me, but they're not going to dictate where I go. Fasting, the Spirit of God working to train him to not just go with what he wanted, but to listen to where God was guiding. 
solitude. He's in the wilderness. <laughs> he didn't go to where the crowds were. The crowds came to him. And it's clear over and over again, he wasn't trying to please anybody. <laughs> if that were the case, his story would be very different. He instead found aloneness with God and finding an audience with God alone, finding that as the primary place of his sustenance, such that when he saw Jesus, his eyes were opened and was able to celebrate the one who was to come. You know, now in Henri Nguyen, um, however you say his name, um, whether you're saying it French or English, uh, um, he says, we have to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day and shake off our compulsions and dwell in the gentle healing presence of our Lord. John the Baptist knew how to do that. And in each of those practices, they're small, they're a place that require attention, they invite discomfort, but they're also accessible no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. And they never let anyone feel like they've succeeded. <laughs> so they're abundantly successful and they're also abundantly humbling. And we can actually be these kinds of people too. So here's the deal. We are in the midst of Lent right now. Um, every, anybody not familiar with Lent? Lent is a season of about 40 days um, as you prepare to get closer to Easter, where we remember Jesus walking through the wilderness for 40 days and actually being tested and he didn't eat and he didn't, I mean, like it's an astounding feat where he was engaged with temptation and experienced victory. Well, the same way Christians throughout history and actually across the globe are engaged in Lent now as a way of repenting and reflecting and sometimes giving things up or sometimes engaged in certain activities for a period of time to constantly do introspection and say, God, make me more like Jesus. Refine me. Help me to not just confess, but also to repent and to become more like him by the power of the Spirit. Well, if that's you, if you're longing to do this, today's the first Sunday of Lent. Ash Wednesday was this last Wednesday, but it's not too late, okay? So it's the first Sunday of Lent. Maybe you want to engage in fasting. Maybe that would be a healthy practice for you. Maybe it's solitude. And to be clear, you don't have to find a patch of desert. Just find a patch in your living room, you know, a chair that's just that chair for that. And get up before your roommates, before your family, just 15 minutes. And say, God, I'm yours. I'm here before you and you alone. No performing. I'm not trying to earn points with anyone but just make me more whole, okay? Solitude. And maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's dishes. You know, um, Andy Crouch has a brilliant book, uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And he is, he's a, a really thoughtful theologian and speaker. And he says every time before he goes on a trip at a, to speak at a conference, he does the dishes like right before his flight. So he's got a wife and a couple kids, and he's like, I could go through my lecture notes again. I could go to make sure I've got all these extra things packed. But he goes, I do the dishes because I know my family has to sacrifice for me to leave. And for me, it reminds me I'm human, and I'm no more than someone who washes the dishes at home. Everywhere else, I might be Andy Crouch, the great speaker, the great theologian. But here, may I never forget that I'm never above washing dishes. And it's a discipline for him. Some of you need to learn that discipline. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> kidding. I don't know. Bad joke. But whatever your practice is, whatever your practice is, okay, this isn't a point. The point isn't to just give up something, to say that you gave up something, and so then again, earn more points because you're performing to, you know, help people see you better so they don't walk. No, 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 no. The goal is to become more whole. Whatever those disciplines might be. And then what you're going to find, and this is where we're going to end, that you're ultimately not becoming more like John, but you're actually following Jesus. 
The goal isn't to be just like John. The Apostle Paul even says, follow me as I follow Christ. John, yes, was preparing the way, but in all respects, he's modeling the way at the same time. Because Jesus, when he came, he did everything, only what he saw his Father in heaven doing. When he came, he didn't come to prove that he was something, but he already was something, and he came to do what he already knew he could do for us, that we might believe him, but he had no doubt in himself. And we see that again and again, when you look just through these last verses of 31 through 35, this is the one who came from heaven down to earth. This is the one in whom there is no limitation to the spirit of God dwelling within him. This is the one in whom God the Father has entrusted all things to him. And what does he do with all of that? He takes this glorious descent all the way to the cross. The one that John says, I must decrease so that he may increase. What does his increase look like? It looks like a bloody death on a cross. Giving up everything for you and for me. I love the way Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer says in his book on ethics, he says, in a world where success is the measure and justification of all things, the figure of him who was sentenced and crucified remains a stranger. We don't know what to do with a Messiah that is a stigma, a God that dies a brutal death rather than forcing his way. It's an utterly upside down way of doing things in the world. And yet every follower of Jesus who's a true follower of Jesus picks up their cross and follows him this way. We lay it down. He must increase. I must decrease. If you want more joy, receive God's call to get out the way. Stop pretending to be God in your life and start training to get out the way today. Let's pray.